Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer, and we're doing something a little different today, which I'll explain. But we've got Glenn Greenwald, Tara Palmieri, Shelby Talcott, plus my friend JT. This is episode 49. I wanted to experiment with a different format for today's show, my thoughts at the top on a story, plus threading that story throughout the rest of the segments. Today, these segments feature a lengthy interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald, a conversation with two great reporters on the GOP 2024 and the art of trail reporting, Puck News' Tara Palmieri, Semaphore's Shelby Talcott. Then we close it out with a segment called Temperature Check, getting the perspective of a real person, not just a media member, on some of the big issues of the week. Glad to have my friend JT from Dallas on at the end of today's show. But we begin with the corporate media's Hunter Biden original sin. It was October 2020, and Jake Sherman, then a prominent political reporter, was panicked. I tweeted a link to the New York Post story right after it dropped yesterday. I immediately reached out to the Biden campaign to see if they had any answer. I wish I had given the story a closer read before tweeting it tweeted out Sherman, then of Politico. My goal was not to spread information. My goal was to raise questions about the story, as I did in subsequent tweets, and see how the Biden campaign was going to respond. They later did respond. My account is clearly no longer suspended. I deleted the tweet. Now, you can see the utter panic from Sherman's tweet with the spelling and capitalization issues. And he wasn't alone. Kyle Griffin, a prolific tweeter who moonlights as a top producer at MSNBC TV shows, tweeted, no one should link to or share that New York Post report. It's a report in quotes. You can discuss the obvious flaws and unanswerable questions in the report without amplifying what appears to be disinformation. I wrote about this in the very first chapter of my book, Uncovered. You can find it at readuncovered.com. How the media got cozy with power, abandoned its principles and lost the people. You can see that the media wasn't overly outraged about the egregious overreach from Twitter and other social platforms against the media outlet because it itself had journalistic PTSD from 2016. There were two factors at the core of the media's relative silence on the matter, guilt and fear. The press truly believed they were partly responsible for Donald Trump's shocking victory over Hillary Clinton four years earlier, thanks to their coverage of her emails the early, easier treatment they gave him during the primary and more. They felt guilty. We're not going to make that same mistake again. Then there was the fear, the social media ostracization, the attacks from their colleagues. Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, who had worked at the New York Post, dared to link to the story early on the 14th, even though she was only questioning the sourcing of it. By the afternoon, she was trending on Twitter as Maga Haberman for her supposed journalistic crime. But it went beyond the acceptance or downright cheerleading of suppression. Natasha Bertrand of Politico wrote a story called Hunter Biden story is a Russian disinfo, dozens of former intel officials say. More than 50 former intelligence officials signed a letter casting doubt on the providence of a New York Post story on the former vice president's son, she would write. Now, we now know that a bit more about how this all came about. You see, former deputy director of the CIA, Mike Morrell, has said that Tony Blinken called him, which prompted him to, quote, help Biden by organizing his colleagues to sign the letter questioning the Post scoop, which was then strategically leaked to Politico. Now, the letter did state that the officials, quote, do not have evidence of Russian involvement related to the laptop story, but the headline attached to Bertrand's report stated that, well, they actually do believe that the Post was peddling in Russian disinfo, Russian disinformation. The letter was used by Biden during the next debate against former President Trump, deflecting from accusations about his involvement in overseas influence schemes. He was saying that uh, that the story was a Russian plant, quote, Russian plant. After the debate, we now know that Morrell received a call from the chairman of the Biden campaign thanking him for writing the letter. The media's involvement, though, was vast, going way beyond that initial political story. U.S. authorities investigating if recently published emails are tied to Russian disinformation effort targeting Biden was the headline of a massive six-bylined report published by CNN two days after the Post story and discussed incessantly for days to come on air. Now, 
As we now know, the laptop's been verified as legitimate by outlets ranging from CNN to the New York Times to the Washington Post to New York Magazine. But the Hunter Biden laptop story from October 2020, that was the corporate media's Hunter Biden original sin. Which brings us to today, because now we have Hunter Biden stories coming out seemingly on a daily basis. There's Devin Archer talking Burisma in Ukraine or the IRS whistleblowers, connections to China. Now that the sweetheart plea deal from the supposedly objective David Weiss has fallen apart, Weiss is now suddenly appointed as the special counsel. Why? What was different from before? And of course, it goes beyond just Hunter, with each story showing more and more evidence of potential corruption landing back at the feet of then-Vice President Joe Biden or Biden during his time between the Obama administration and his 2020 presidential run. These are legitimate stories. They deserve coverage from any outlet that considers itself a journalistic entity. But we only recently have started to see it. A little bit. Bits and pieces. Why? I'd argue it traces back to the very beginning. The original sin from October 2020. The embarrassing mistakes, or worse, conscious decisions that went into the Hunter Biden media debacle. An overwhelming incuriosity that has continued to this day. Because to admit there are stories now is to be forced to reckon with the story that was there from day one, back in October 2020, when Jake Sherman was apologizing profusely for linking to the New York Post so he could get his Twitter account back and get back in the good standing of the Biden campaign and his buddies in the press. Coming up, my interview with someone whose Hunter Biden coverage in October 2020 literally changed the trajectory of his life and career. Not an exaggeration. Glenn Greenwald hosted the Rumble Show System Update, joins me right now. All right, Glenn, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, I, I I don't think there's anyone as closely associated with the, the Hunter Biden laptop story and the ramifications of covering a story uh, in the moment that obviously, as we as we know now, close to three years later, it was 100% true, totally legitimate. Um, but what can happen from the fallout of that? And I wanted to, to start there. I know, I, I, I can't imagine that it, it was a painful period professionally for you, you know, it was the exit, uh, your exit at the intercept, the, upon, uh, the company that you, you were a co-founder of. Um, I, I was looking back at some of this, though, the 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 way that uh, your, your colleagues, your employees described you and in, in your writing of it. And before I, I get into the actual piece that you ended up publishing on your Substack, I believe it was like the first post that you published on your Substack after, I wanted to talk about just looking back at that period of, you know, we are a few weeks out of the election. So kind of a crazy time, obviously Trump's involved, Biden's involved, but, but what do you remember from even before you, you sent that to go to get published at, at the intercept or, or sent that in, what do you remember about that time in the media and in the political world? I think what was going on at the Intercept provides a microcosm for what was going on in the media generally. We had been pretty aggressive in the 2016 election cycle, including heading into the general election, about covering and reporting on all of the very various releases about Hillary Clinton and the emails that had been published from her uh, from the DNC and from her campaign manager, Don Podesta, which were published by WikiLeaks. We talked a lot about the significance of it. We built a lot on it. We were being very criticized at the time by a lot of Democrats, by a lot, a lot of liberals, readers of the site, people who had supported my work, that we were essentially helping Donald Trump's campaign by reporting critically on Hillary Clinton. And of course, my argument was at the time, which continues to be my view, that journalists don't think that way. Journalists don't decide what to cover and what to report and what to hide and what to ignore based on which political party it helps or hurts. That's not our role as journalists, and you shouldn't want journalists doing that. I think the reason so many senior editors at The Intercept, though, were comfortable doing that is because they assumed Hillary Clinton was going to win right. anyway, and that would kind of end up being inconsequential or could even establish their bona fides, like, oh, look, we were willing to criticize the candidate we opposed, and I remember the night when, in fact, Donald Trump won, people were crying inside the Slack channel and admitting they were doing so. And not only that, there were many of them saying, we need to apologize for the role we played. We were misogynistic. We should never have done this reporting. Now, the senior editors of The Intercept didn't go that far and endorse that, but they absolutely felt with, you know, all we all live in these social circles. And if you're a senior editor at The Intercept, someone who's been around left-wing media for a long time, the editor-in-chief, Betsy Reed, had come from the nation. She went to Harvard. 
She lives in Brooklyn. All her friends are liberals or leftists or whatever. Same with Naomi Klein and people like this. You don't want to have people looking at you and thinking that you played a role in helping Donald Trump win, especially since you already went for, you know, spent four years doing that. Right. And so heading into the 2020 election, they were absolutely determined to make sure that they weren't going to make what they considered the same mistake. And that was true of journalists all across Washington and New York. I remember being most alarmed the very first time when outlets like the Washington Post promulgated new rules for how they were going to treat any leaks or any archives that materialized heading into the election, they were basically saying, ordinarily, we would publish it. This time, we're not going to do that. We're not going to report on it if we think that it comes from a foreign power. Like, why? I mean, if you're a journalist, the only question you ought to be asking is, is this information accurate? And is it in the public interest? You don't care where it comes from or the motive of the source that has never been part of the journalistic equation before. And they started fundamentally revising what journalism meant in order to avoid doing anything possible to undermine Joe Biden. That was when I knew journalism had gone very, very radically and dangerously wrong. And then I began seeing that even inside the media outlet that I co-founded in 2013. Yeah, it's, I mean, you mentioned Betsy Reed, uh, her her letter announcing your resignation. It's, again, I, I mean, again, nothing personal against Betsy Reed uh, from my end, but it's just, it, it's amazing to look at it now as a piece of history as, as this time, you know, describing it as, oh, it makes good business sense for Glenn to position himself as the last true guardian of investigative journalism. But facts are facts. The Intercept record of fearless, rigorous, independent journalism speaks for itself. It's like, well, maybe it once did. Um, and then uh, in a New York Magazine piece, uh, Deputy Editor Roger Hodge saying that Glenn's idea of The Intercept was a chorus of Glenn's it's like, well, how about not a chorus of Glenn's? Maybe just one Glenn, just Glenn being Glenn, you know. And and so I, I I use that as a way into the piece itself because I have to say, you know, I went back and looked at it this week. You go to great pains to be extremely careful and precise in a very lengthy piece about what we know and what we don't know and what we've learned. It is not some, it, even though it did all turn out to be true as far as we know from what the reporting was from the New York Post. And has now been verified by outlets like CNN and the New York Times. It was it was very careful about how it went about it. Um, but you look at that piece and this idea you describe as these journalists desperate not to know, uh, which you write about in the article, and also obviously was your experience at the own publication. Uh, where do you think? I mean, obviously, yes, some of the scars from 2016 play a role here. But what about that in particular? That moment where it was where it, it, they had to make it about you know, this Russian disinformation effort or something, just pour something on it. Where do you think that really came from? Why was that the, the breaking point there? You know, what was so amazing to me was this idea of a chorus of Glenn's. Um, the reality is, if you go back, you know, I co-founded The Intercept with two other journalists, Laura Poitras and Jeremy Scale, and we were all saying the same thing, which is, you know, we all were, we all, Laura and I in particular had the most important story of, in journalism at the time, which was the Snowden archive. We would have only left what we were doing. I was at The Guardian. She was working with their Spiegel and other media outlets around the world, as was I, in order to create an outlet that we really thought was going to make a difference. And the idea was we're going to be different than all other media outlets. There's no reason to create a new outlet if you're not. And in particular, we're going to be very adversarial to the U.S. security state and to the claims they advance through anonymous leaks unaccompanied by evidence. That's what not only Russiagate was, but that was so obviously what this claim was that the Hunter Biden laptop was, quote, Russian disinformation. There was absolutely no evidence for it. It came directly from 51 members, former members, the leaders of the U.S. security state, the CIA, Homeland Security, under both political parties. And if there was anything we ought to have been skeptical of as The Intercept, just in terms of our founding values, it would be that. And this idea that The Intercept has these really high editorial standards, which is what I was told when they wouldn't let me publish my story, even though I had a contractual right to publish stories without any editorial intervention unless I requested it, was so amazing to me because five days earlier, the five days before I wanted to publish that article, they published an article by Jim Risen, whom they had hired from The New York Times, basically to counterbalance my Russiagate skepticism. He became a fanatical Russiagator, right. um, you know, accusing Trump of treason and just the most deranged maximalist accusations. And five days before I was told my article didn't meet the editorial standards of The Intercept, the lofty editorial standards, because I was treating the Hunter Biden laptop as likely accurate, which is obviously what I thought it was if I were willing to put my name and my stake, my reputation on endorsing it. 
they had published an article by Jim Risen giving credence to the view that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. It's something that we A, know now know is completely false. Every major media outlet after Biden was safely reelected, admitted they were able to reelected, admitted they were able to authenticate it, could prove it was uh, genuine in every instance. But also it came right from the CIA and the and the NSA and Homeland Security. There was no evidence, and they just blindly ingested it and mindlessly spread it and ratified it. And that was what I was told were the lofty editorial standards of the intercept that my article couldn't meet. But it was indicative of this idea, which I think is so interesting. I, you know, setting aside whatever acrimony I have, not just about what happened to me, but what happened to journalism in general. You know, Chris Hayes wrote this book, the MSNBC host, in 2011 called Twilight of the Elites. I read it. I reviewed it. I interviewed Chris when the book came out. And his argument was that major media corporations, corporations, large corporations in general, are so powerful in terms of their the way they're structured to co-op people, to lure people into their grip. He said... No matter how smart you are, no matter how well-intentioned you are, no matter how resistant you are, if you enter one of those and thrive within it, you will eventually adopt their worldview because it's all geared to reward you personally yeah. for doing so and punish you for not. I obviously asked him. He was just getting his own MSNBC show. What are you planning to do, do to immunize yourself from these, uh, these, these corruptions because you said it was inevitable? And he told me, I haven't thought about it yet. He probably should have since he's now Exhibit A for the truth of that book. But I really think these people became true believers in the idea that Donald Trump was essentially a Nazi, a Hitler-like figure. His movement was tantamount to Nazism, and therefore, higher than their journalistic function was some overarching, subsuming obligation that was moral and ethical in nature to do everything they could to defeat Donald Trump and his movement, even if it meant lying, abandoning journalistic principles, spreading propaganda joining with the U.S. security state, and that's what they proceeded to do. And I really think it was based on an authentic belief because they all talk to each other, they all feed on each other's orthodoxies all day long. Social media reinforces that with a reward and punishment system that you don't dissent or you know that you have to conform to those orthodoxies or you get expelled from those circles. And I think it really did affect them and still affects them to this very day. That's their driving worldview. Yeah, it's 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 so true. So I mean, of all the people I think that have been most disappointing in their total lack of curiosity or intellectual honesty, Chris Hayes is, is definitely at the top of that list because I think he came from a place where he was that way and it's become this total 180. I want to ask you about him a little bit later also, but just to look, I'm going to link the the article itself that you wrote uh again October 2020, your first Substack piece. Um but it ends with this, uh, a media outlet that renounces its core function pursuing answers to relevant questions about powerful people is one that deserves to lose the public's faith and confidence. And that is exactly what the U.S. media, with some exceptions, attempted to do with this story. They took the lead not in investigating these documents, but in concocting excuses for why they should be ignored. Uh, very true. And it's interesting, you, you bring this moment of Simone Sanders on MSNBC about this, saying, if the president decides to amplify these latest smears against the vice president and his only living son, that is Russian disinformation. And then you think Sanders would then go on to work in the White House. And then would go on to return to MSNBC as a host, uh, what she's doing now. And, and I wonder how much of that do you think is at play also? It's this revolving door side of this, this whole industry where, in a way, the transparency of social media think, made me think maybe that would be less because it's so obvious now. But it's actually, in a way, gotten worse maybe in the in the shadow of Trump. Stephen Miller, the not the former Trump uh, aide, but the conservative commentator, who's actually pretty an anti-Trump conservative, but yeah, not one of those Red times became a never-Trump. Yeah, exactly. He's a great, I think, media critic and very smart. Published an article this week, I think a couple of days ago, in The Spectator, pointing out how extreme it's become that NBC News, MSNBC, CNN, all of our leading media corporations are now on this hiring spree where they're taking communications officials directly from the Biden White House, people who work directly for Joe Biden and disseminating his message, people who work for Kamala Harris and in spreading the message of the administration are putting them not just on the payroll where they participate in panel discussions, but giving them their own programs. Right. Jen Psaki, obviously, is the leading example. It's not unusual 
for people to go from being a White House communication official to being a journalist, George Stephanopoulos, for example, hosts Good Morning America as part of ABC News for two decades, and he came right out of the Clinton Communication White House. And there have been members of the Bush administration and the Trump administration who have done that with Fox. But to do it in this kind of systematized way where they're just taking large numbers of them and like stocking up on top of what is already basically state media of the CNN, of CNN and NBC, where they never, ever criticize uh, a Democratic Party official. They constantly reinforce Democratic Party propaganda. And you're not just talking about MSNBC primetime hosts. We're talking about the entire NBC News outfit that has completely been influenced by MSNBC, which was always the worry of NBC. And now they've just acquiesced to that. And CNN as well. You know, it's really interesting. Um, obviously, you know, you're somebody who has worked with Megyn Kelly for a long time. And I watched that interview Megyn Kelly did of Ron DeSantis, who at least it seems clear to me is the candidate Megyn most supports. She's been pretty honest about that. And yet when she interviewed Ron, Ron DeSantis, it was very adversarial. She embarrassed him on a couple of occasions. He couldn't answer certain questions she posed to him about the rationale of what he did and said. And I realized in that moment that you would never, ever, ever, ever see a Democratic Party official, a leading Democratic senator or House member treated even a fraction uh, with that kind of adversarial spirit on either MSNBC or CNN. Never. While, you know, and of course, Tucker Carlson's main uh, targets were members of the GOP establishment. He hated Mitch McConnell. He hated uh, Kevin McCarthy. So you really do have a major part of the media that is just flagrantly and openly devoted to the uh, success of the Democratic Party and now taking communication staffers and just putting them all over the newsrooms of these media outlets is really kind of a new, a new, uh, you know, uh, just evolution of this idea that these media outlets are attached to that party. Yeah, it's uh, one point of clarification. Just I, I, you know, Megan has said she would vote for DeSantis over Biden for sure. I don't know which candidate she necessarily prefers, but no, I mean, the point is well taken. And I think before we kind of broaden down, right, I'm just speculating. I think I personally think if Megan had to vote in the primary, she'd vote for DeSantis. I admit that speculation. And that's what makes her treatment of him all the more impressive to me. 100%. And I have no doubt she would treat every candidate that way as well. Well, this is also why I, I I think it's such this false binary that people say, oh, the Chris Lick model was like, bring on Republicans and give them easy interviews. No, that was not the point. The point was, yes, have on Republicans, give them hard interviews, but also bring on Democrats, give them hard interviews. And that's the point of journalism. It's not to be this friendly place for everybody. It's the opposite of that. That gets to my point kind of of the Hunter Biden laptop as the original sin when it comes to Hunter Biden. I wonder how much of that, what happened in, the, in those October 2020 decisions by the media lead us to where we are now, where IRS whistleblowers, what we're learning about Burisma and China, and go right on down the line about not just Hunter Biden, but potentially Vice President Joe Biden and and, and his life after he left office between before he decided to run for president again. How much of that is contributing to the reluctance by most of the media to cover these stories as actual legitimate stories? As I said, I think that this punishment system that social media enables, but also that people in media themselves have constructed is very powerful. You know, if you think about human beings and how we evolved and all of that, we are tribal animals, we're social and political animals. We have an instinctive desire not to be castigated or expelled from society that used to mean death, you know, when we were living in tribes and needed our tribes in order to survive. If we were cast out, it would mean we would wither away and die. And this instinct is very much still within us. I remember we were talking earlier about how Anybody who brought up the Hunter Biden laptop and the things that it revealed during the campaign were accused by Simone Sanders, by Joe Biden, as he did in the debate, of being basically an agent of the Kremlin, doing the Kremlin's bidding. And I remember that one journalist in particular, the only journalist who did it in corporate media, Bo Erickson of CBS News, yep. asked Joe Biden about these business deals that Hunter Biden clearly was pursuing in the name of Joe Biden and the evidence that Joe Biden was at least aware of them, if not participating in them. You can go back and look and you will see that the media, not just Democrats, but the media, there was no difference, obviously, castigated him as being basically the final step of the Russian campaign to try and infiltrate and influence our elections because he was giving voice to these fabricated allegations. And that creates a huge incentive. Other journalists see that. Why would you want to step out, especially if you're a younger journalist or somebody who isn't quite 
uh, of the stature with an audience that would let you survive no matter what, be independent. You know, media environment where jobs are collapsing and layoffs are common. If even one day you step out of line and Twitter turns against you, liberal Twitter turns against you, and you get branded, all sorts of things, and they publish articles about you that are attached to your name in Google, that becomes a very easy way that any editor with 27 you know, applications on their desk can just throw your name away because why would they want to hire somebody who's been called a fascist or a Russian agent right. by the media? That really keeps them in line. On the Hunter Biden and Burisma investigation, the first journalist who published that, and I do think it's important to credit the people inside these corrupted organizations who try and do a good job, was this New York Times reporter Ken Bogle. He was the one who started digging into the payments Hunter Biden was getting, the possibility that Joe Biden intervened in Ukraine to help Burisma because it was paying his son. And you go and look at the way Ken Bogle was attacked and talked about. And ever since then, the New York Times assigned other reporters to drop, pull back on the story, to present the Biden worldview that actually firing that prosecutor, Victor Shonkin, benefited or rather uh, undermined Burisma because he was being fired for not taking steps against Burisma that were investigative in nature. And the New York Times started doing that to balance it, just like the Intercept hired Tim Jermizen to try and counterbalance my Russiagate skepticism. And that is the incentive being created within media is not to pursue any stories that ever could undermine the Democratic Party and therefore strengthen Donald Trump. And most people who go to work for giant corporations in general are people who know that the way you thrive in the corporate world is by not making waves, not alienating people who are powerful, not ever kind of seeing being seen as a troublemaker. The problem is that for journalism, those are crucial characteristics. You're supposed to be a troublemaker. You're supposed to be banging right. on pots and angering people in power. But the climate is very much that they are designed to be conformist. And obviously, that is how you thrive in journalism. Yeah. And, and to, I mean, Ken Vogel does do great reporting and, and it's one of the, the true nuances of this is that, that the New York times is terribly corrupted and yet there's good journalism there happening pretty much every day um, by certain people often getting uh, overridden and uh, uh, by, by the bad journalism that's happening. Um, last question. Uh, you spent a lot of time back when you were in the, in the corporate media's good graces, uh, not in physical green rooms necessarily at MSNBC, uh, but 2014, 2015 regular on Chris Hayes's show, um, and and I, I wonder, you know, as as you look at that, are are you able to to say I could could have seen this coming? This this was not unexpected, or is it surprising to you where it drifted after the Trump phenomenon came? Yeah, you know, I used to be on Rachel Maddow's show a lot. Rachel was a friend of mine. Um, I used to go on her Air America show before she even had a show on MSNBC. People forget that it was Tucker Carlson that had a right. show on MSNBC, and he used to put Rachel on all the time. They were friends, and he really thought she was a talented on-air personality, which she is. He was right. And when I used to go on Air America, invariably, I would go on, sometimes I would go on like once a week on her show, it would be to attack the Democratic Party from like ostensibly the left, you know, not doing enough to impede the Bush-Cheney war on terror, the policies of militarism and corporatism. She was a very uh, steadfast critic of the Democratic Party, just like Chris Hayes was. They both were. That was the foundation for our positive interaction, Rachel, you know, constantly praised my work, um, you know, being the most important voice on the left, that sort of thing. And I did start to see the transformation over time, especially once President Obama was elected. And they started looking at the Tea Party and this kind of what they viewed as extremism in the Republican Party, the same way they now look at Trump, although not nearly as much, but, but still on the same path. And they started concluding that their role was to defend the Democratic Party, whereas they used to be vocal critics of it. And it happened to coincide with the fact, and I remember Chris once told me that when you're a host, and you obviously know this, that you don't get show-by-show show ratings, you get segment-by-segment segment ratings. Yeah, and minutes, he could, usually, yeah. Yeah, and he told me he could see, if he put someone on the air like me or anybody to criticize the Democratic Party for any reason, you could see the people clicking off. And the incentives, you know, you get a... $2 million contract, and then you want to renegotiate it for a multi-million dollar contract. You want to buy a second house, and you have a mortgage on this weekend house in the Hamptons, and you don't want to lose that. And a the reality is that what saved their job was Donald Trump. You can go back and look at 2015 articles, 2016 articles. They were all saying it's just a matter of time before Chris Hayes gets fired because no one was watching his show. That was true for a lot of them. 
and they found this golden ticket, which was talking about Donald Trump constantly, talking about how he was Hitler, talking about how he was an orange fascist, talking about how he was a threat to all things decent. And they watched their ratings go up and their fortunes ex uh, expand. And it takes, I think, a rare character, somebody with a lot of strength of character and purpose and values to resist that and to say, more important than how much money I'm making is how good I feel about what I'm saying and doing, you know, how much kind of pride I have in it, how much, how it sits on my conscience. You know, I always used to say like that the, and I still do that the happiest person I know in the world is Edward Snowden. And I once talked to him about why that is. And he told me oh. because every night when he goes to bed, he gets to put his head on the pillow, knowing that at his moment of truth, he sacrificed his own self-interest, even his liberty. We thought he was going to prison for life in order to do what he thought was right, which was to reveal the truth to his fellow citizens. So for me, that's invaluable. And again, Chris was the one who wrote the book explaining why very few people are able to do that. Len, one of the best journalists uh, working today. Thank you so much. Hey, it's great to uh, talk to you, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks to Glenn Greenwald. Always great talking to him. Before we get to the next segment, I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is always available exclusively for paid subscribers on Substack. You get a whole bunch of extra content from original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole to the full podcast each episode. Check it out for just five bucks a month, $50 for a year at fourthwatch.media. Now I want to turn to the campaign trail, two great reporters who are laser focused on that topic. Shelby Talcott, a reporter for Semaphore, who was previously at The Daily Caller. And Tara Palmieri writes at Puck News and has a new Ringer podcast called Somebody's Gotta Win. Here's that conversation. I wanted to start because I, I think that there's something about uh, trail reporting in particular that, you know, my, my complaint a lot of times with the media is how out of touch they can be with the general public. And there's something about trail reporting that actually kind of upends that in a lot of ways. You're actually out there among the people, talking to people. And, and so I'm curious about that, especially as we get into the, the real heat of the, the next 15 months of, of this crazy, chaotic election that's ahead. Um, just to talk conceptually about trail reporting first. Um, so Shelby, let me start with you. I know, you know you're talk we're talking to you in Iowa right now. Uh, what is that like? What are you seeing that maybe you're not getting if you're sitting on a set in New York or D.C.? Well, I think just getting out here, particularly in places like Iowa, you're talking to kind of more regular voters. And so there's not this D.C. bubble that people talk about it, it a lot. It's real. Um, and so you go out to these areas in Iowa and you either meet people who are a little bit less politically inclined. And, you know, I, we were walking by with Tim Scott uh, recently, and we had some voters who knew who he was and some people who passed by and said, oh, who's that? Why are so many so much press following him? And so you really get a better understanding of what middle America is focused on in this upcoming election. Oftentimes it is not at all with the media or what DC is focused on. Um, they're focused on very different things. And so I think getting out there on the trail and speaking to actual voters who are going to determine this election is crucial when you're when you're covering a presidential. Yeah. And, and Tara, I know you've been on the trail and, and also some of the more recent reporting you're doing is kind of on on the the ins and outs of like the DeSantis campaign and who's in and who's out. I, I saw in Iowa recently there was like some sort of brawl happening or yelling match between the DeSantis yeah. folks. And, and, and I guess it's kind of a microcosm of this as well. And, and I, I wonder what you think of, you know, trail reporting versus what even the people who are running these campaigns, who have spent a lot of time among, you know, DC and in the media, um, mm -hmm. where the disconnect is there and, and kind of what's, what's the differentiating factor when it comes to, you know, what, what real people are, are most curious about. I agree with Shelby, but I think a lot of these states that we zero in on, like Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, they decide candidates, but they're really active um, participants in the political process. I don't think most people are, so I don't know that they are necessarily like the, the best indicator of the national pulse when it comes to a general election. And like, you go to someone, you talk to someone in New Hampshire, they know so much about the political discourse going on. They know about the candidates, same in Iowa. Like they have pride in the fact that they have this kind of power over the political process. But I think outside of there, a lot of people are just like tuning out the indictments, tuning out the candidates. I bet you most people would do not know who Vivek Ramaswamy is. They don't know that Francis Suarez is in the game. They don't know. And I think like we as journalists overestimate that. And some of that is because we're on the trail, right? 
um, for me, like what I gathered when I was in New Hampshire, um, this was in May and it was like right after Ron DeSantis came out of the gate. I'd been doing a lot of reporting from people who worked for him that kind of warned me like, this guy's not ready for prime time. He can't manage an operation. He's kind of a, it's like, he's a bit of a tyrant. He only listens to his wife, but he just doesn't have that political magnetism, that it factor. And I had to see it myself, right? Like people can tell you what a person is like. I've seen him on TV. Yeah. He's got like some memeable moments. He does this like head cocking thing. His laugh is horrible. He swipes his nose all the time. He's got all these just like pics that can be memed very easily and just make him seem very unlikable. But it really wasn't until I got there in New Hampshire and just tried to like look him in the eye and the guy looked terrified of me. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is not a guy ready for prime time because I remember when I was in my twenties and I had met Donald Trump for the first time, that guy was not afraid to look you in the eye. In fact, when he talked to you, he like zeroed in on you and you felt like you were the only person in the room in the same way that Bill Clinton has that power and people with like real political magnetism have that power. And I just, don't I think it's the vibe from DeSantis. In fact, like I went all the way to the state house and tried to interview him there and he fled. Like, just yeah. give me a few questions. Like, you can't be afraid of me. Uh, you had a big press corps out there, and obviously they've shifted their you know position as of late, and now they're doing interviews with NBC and they're letting him talk to the press, and they're not being complete assholes to us. But um it's just like, I was like, this guy is not ready. And that's the kind of thing you find out on the ground. And this is what people in Florida had been saying all along. And I heard him talking to a bunch of state legislators about, you know, Florida, 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 Florida. It's like these people live in New Hampshire. They don't care like only about your Florida success story. Tell them how you're going to make their country better. They're yeah. New Hampshire better. And I just got the vibe like, oh God, this guy's not ready. And then obviously within months, it was like, Okay, he's on the decline. Christie's chomping at the bit. You know, Scott is Tim Scott's up the back. Everybody's sort of like on his tail now, and he's just going down. Everyone else is going up. So yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, like you say that, and Shelby, I'm curious, you know, your your perspective also of seeing this in Iowa pretty recently of you know DeSantis and then the the shadow of Donald Trump like literally coming down, but also just just in general like. The, it feels like I'm getting some some 2016 vibes with with especially people in the conservative media trying to make DeSantis the thing to to topple Trump, the the true conservative in the way that like maybe they did with with Ted Cruz back in 2016. And and I wonder as you're watching that, as you're reporting on it, if you're seeing that kind of dichotomy also between between Trump, DeSantis, and uh, kind of the, the rest of the field. Yeah, I I do 100, percent and I think. Before Ron DeSantis jumped into the race, there was legitimate reasons for conservative media to be so enthralled with him, right? He did everything that they wanted to do during COVID. He was kind of, he was all over TV. Um, And I don't know whether it is he waited too long to announce or he was skirting around whether he was going to run for too long, but for whatever reason, or maybe it is just the simple fact that we are so far past COVID that those things have kind of uh, moved to the back of voters' minds. But it is so hard for any of these presidential candidates to get out ahead of Donald Trump. And the prime example was at the Iowa State Fair recently when Donald Trump was there by far the least out of all the presidential candidates. I think he was on the ground for maybe two hours and he completely overshadowed and took over all the other candidates who were on the ground for that time period. And quite frankly, that day, if you look at all of the media stories, all of the headlines that came out of that day where Donald Trump overshadows the rest of the Republican field or Donald Trump trolls Ron DeSantis. Uh, and, And I think that's really the biggest question mark from all of the other presidential campaigns is how can we win in a cycle against somebody who's such a force and really still runs the Republican Party? And I haven't seen any presidential candidate be able to effectively answer that question. And I think that's why you're seeing the numbers in the in the polls where they are. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely going to be. I mean, I mean, we'll we'll see. There's lots of little marks to go along the way between debates and and other potential, you know, head to head moments. But uh, but watch that. I, I want to bring up two topics that one that the media does not spend a lot of time on, and one that they spend an enormous amount of time on, and kind of get your perspectives on it as it relates to to your coverage and what you're seeing on the ground and with these campaigns. Um, starting with Biden and kind of the the whole Biden corruption smoke fire question. I know you recently wrote about uh, about 
questions of whether Joe Biden is 100% going to be the Democratic nominee. Um, yeah. And I wonder how much of it is these stories, which have not been getting a lot of coverage, but is the fact that they are starting to, to you know, the plea deal falls apart for Hunter Biden. Now we're starting to get a little bit more out there. Is it is is there something real there? Is there smoke there that maybe he's not 100% going to be the nominee? I think in Biden's mind, in, in Biden, I think in Biden's mind and Biden's world, um, that they 100% want him to hold on to power and be president again, right? I mean, there's an entire infrastructure around him. There are a lot of mo- people around him. There's money around him. There's the Democratic Party surrounding him. And like, he is the leader and they haven't identified another person. But of course, there are outliers. There are tons of Democratic governors around him and just people jockeying for power. Like, if you want to get power, you have to take it. It's not going to be given to you. And there's a feeling that this is a president who is not really that popular. And in yeah. fact, is neck and neck in the polls with Donald Trump. And for so long, his whole you know position of strength was I alone can beat Donald Trump, right? And like, it turns out the polls aren't really showing that right now. And it's making people nervous. And it's making everybody around him who thinks we should be the generational change. Governor um, you know, Newsom from California, Governor Pritzker from Illinois, you've got Gretchen Whitmer, Michigan, the stars of the party are starting to jockey and say, wait a minute, we got to be ready. This guy's at 80. He'll be running when he's 81 or 82. And who knows what's going to happen? Also, who knows who he's going to be running against? Will he continue to slide in the polls? Will he have something happen to him? Will he just decide he doesn't want to run? And so everybody's just sort of ready. But the very strange thing is that like this generation is so deferential to the president and no one's really willing to primary him, even though he is objectively a very weak candidate. And that's why RFK Jr. is polling so well, like 12% in some states. It's crazy. And you've got a very weak presidential candidate and everyone's just like, well, he's the only one who can beat Trump. But do we really know that? We don't. And will he be running against Trump? Looks like it. Who knows? But what if he's running against someone who is a generational shift from him? And just, you know, there, there are a lot of question marks going on right now. And optionality is like the one thing in politics that is consistent. It's a cynical business. And for people to say that they're not jockeying or positioning themselves is a farce. Yeah. And and, and Shelby kind of dovetailing on that, I, I wonder how much of this Biden corruption story, the, the real ins and outs, Hunter Biden and the IRS whistleblowers, are the voters on the ground who are not necessarily like super politically engaged, interested in that? Is that something that's driving people's potential thoughts on the election? I don't know how much voters who are less politically engaged know the ins and outs, like the specific details of the situation. But I think generally, even voters, even Republican voters who maybe aren't, you know, reading the news every single day, still by and large believe the broad theory that the DOJ is politicized, um, which we've seen every Republican presidential candidate back up Trump, um, which, you know, is a whole other conversation of we have all of Trump's opponents continuing to essentially support all of these uh, beliefs that he has injected into the Republican Party. So, yeah, I do think in a broad sense, even those who are not necessarily paying attention to the specific details still believe that general idea that the DOJ is politicized, that we have all of these problems with the FBI, that you know X, Y, and Z need, need to be completely revamped. And that is a big theme um, that Republicans are hitting on. And when I talk to voters, it is something that they're interested in. Is it number one? Is it number two? No. But is it top five? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, how about then on the other end of the spectrum of terms of general corporate media interest, January 6th, uh, you know, the focus of essentially two of the four indictments on the Trump side, how much do you think that's going to play a factor in, in where people fall, uh, and it comes to what, what people are interested on the ground? In a primary, I don't see it affecting virtually at all. Um, and maybe Tara has a, a different point of view in this. I haven't been to as many, you know, Chris Christie events, which I think could probably garner a different set of of Republican voters. Yeah. Yeah. But the you never really hear, I never really hear voters talk about January 6th or bring it up on their own. They'll discuss it if they're asked about it. Um, but by and large, it it 
when you get out here, it seems to be, okay, yeah, this was a bad thing, but it was also a DC thing. It happened a long time ago. I'm worried about right. the economy. I'm worried about my gas prices. Uh, and so I don't think it affects it in a primary. Do I think it affects it in a general? general? Yes, because my big question when it comes to Trump, and I've asked Trump's campaign this, is how does he get those independent voters? Or how does he get the voters who voted for Biden last time around? And it seems like things like January 6th only harden the lines of support. Yeah. I ha- Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I also, I think it's also interesting how high how fre- I think it's also interesting how frequently Hunter Biden comes up in conversations with voters. Um, it's really a topic of conversation. I think what bothers people is that he made a lot of money off his father, off of access to his dad. And it's the kind of money that you and I maybe will never see, probably will never see in our lives. And these voters probably have never seen in their lives, you know, millions and millions of dollars working for Burisma, you know, based in Ukraine, Russian, you know, connections, China, it's like everything that people have sort of been taught, especially in the Republican Party to hate, especially through Trump's drain the swamp, you know, rhetoric and distrust the government and don't listen to the experts. It all feeds into this cycle of conspiracy and distrust in government, the media. And a lot of people are just, they just see this as an extension. It's like, it's influence, it's, it's lobbying, it's slimy, it's foreign governments. And it's and then you have all these kind of actual pictures of the president's son from his laptop showing him engaging in behavior that is very questionable. It makes people not question it at all. They're like, of course, this guy offers access to his father. You know, look, he's taking cocaine. I mean, he's, you know, doing drugs and he's doing this. Of course, this guy did that. What's what's the line? Um, And then there are people who are sympathetic, knowing that he's a drug addict. Perhaps they have someone in their family like that. But I think for Republicans who are hardened against Biden, it's just a reason not to vote for him. Well, and, and then it kind of brings up the last thing, which is that that and Tara, you've got a new a new podcast, Somebody's Gotta Win, which is a great title because it kind of alludes to this maybe lack of enthusiasm between if what what appears to be our two choices as we head towards this next 15 months, which which is Trump and Biden number two, uh, election number two here. And and I wonder if you if you look at what the average, say, C-suite media executive is thinking about what's coming over the next 15 months versus what the average person is thinking, if you see that disconnect there, the kind of the people versus those in power over what's about to happen over this insane 15 months that are ahead. I think it's going to be really unpredictable. I mean, we're going to be following legal trials that coincide with election events and Trump is going to dominate the news, whether he's in the game or he's not. And I'm sure he's going to stay in the game for as long as possible. Like, for example, next week, they're going to have the um, the debates. They want Trump there. But Trump could just overshadow the debate by turning himself in, right? Around the yeah. same time right. in Georgia. Um, we, don't think know about how that. <laughs> we don't know who the candidate's going to be on the on really on either side. <laughs> there are a lot of question marks. <laughs> Both are not strong. One is stronger than the other. Obviously, Biden is. He is the sitting president of the United States, and he's still alive and kicking. But, like, it's the wild, wild west this next 15 months. And I think there is a a sense of fatigue among voters. And it's a fatigue against the media. It's a fatigue against government. It's a fatigue against the people who have been telling them the story of our country for a long time. And I think... I'm trying to tap into just this sort of sense of malaise, but also are we staring down a rematch? It's a bit doomsday, but, you know, somebody's got to win. You should know what's going on. You have that right as an American. And I'm here to tell you with people who know. I think it's going to be really hard to, I think it's going to be really hard for the media in particular, also this cycle, because of all the things Tara just mentioned, and you have, I mean, you have four indictments and you have kind of this obsession within the media in a way, rightfully so over these indictments, right? They're historic. They've never happened before. Um, They have to be covered. Uh, But then you have regular voters who aren't really paying attention to that stuff. And they want to know about what the next president is going to do about the economy and what the next president is going to do about foreign policy. Um, and we have what, I don't know, 14 
people running for president on the Republican side alone. And so I think this cycle in particular, it's going to be really interesting to see how different factions of the media um, take approaches to handling all of that information, all of which is important and all of which should be told to the American people. Yeah, but well, there is so like a there's a fatigue because not all of the indictments are the same. I mean, the yes. first one came out with a lot of hype, but it was about paying off a porn star. Now we're at the heart of democracy <laughs> and the latest, you know, he can't even pardon himself if he ends up becoming president. Like he could be in prison and not be able to get out. Yeah. So it's just like it, it's like the car chase. He's now in on it. He's letting reporters in the in the um, in the motorcade with him. It's just become absurd. It's a spectacle that I think Americans are tuning out when they really should be listening in. But I get why. Yeah. It's 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 like we're tired of this. We've been and watching this for a long time. That's Trump's team's goal in all of these indictments is to effectively merge his legal argument with his political campaign. Like they will tell you it is one in the same. That's why you saw, I think it was his second indictment in Miami. He left the courthouse and went and did a campaign stop. You know, he's, these things are intentional. Um, And I can see you're completely right that at some point there's a fatigue among voters with all of this drama. Yeah. Well, we're going to follow you both uh, during all this and hope to have you back. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be, it's going to be crazy, but, uh, but appreciate your coverage. Thanks to Shelby and Tara, two really trustworthy reporters in a sea of not-so-trustworthy reporters. Uh, you know how it is. All right. We're closing it out now with my friend JT from here in Dallas, one of the first people I met when I first moved here 10 years ago. He's funny, he's wise, and he's way outside the media and politics world, thank God. This segment is called Temperature Check, and we're getting JT's temperature on a variety of stories. Thanks for doing this. Your, your I think your first podcast appearance ever, uh, as, as you my said. My first one? This is, I'm, I'm glad to be your first. Uh, let me start with this. Um, let's go with the Trump indictments, okay? We've got four Trump indictments now uh, as of as of earlier this week of, of Monday. Um, I guess if we want to break these down, we've got uh, the paying off the porn star in New York. We've got the uh, taking classified documents with him going on in Florida. We've got the January 6th fake elector thing going on in D.C. Now we've got a Georgia criminal conspiracy thing also related to 2020 election. All of this, any of this, getting your temperature on it, any of this mattering to you, any of this interesting, where do you kind of land on what's going on with all these? I mean, oh, man, Um, I think it's honestly, it's just sad that we're kind of in this thing. I, I think that poor guy is probably really busy trying to keep up with all this. Uh, I can't even imagine. I, I've, I've been sued once and it was a nightmare and very stressful. Uh, and I know he has a lot of money and lot, lots of people in his corner, but I can't imagine dealing with all that. That's one layer. And then the other layer is, wow. I mean, we must look like a joke to everyone else around the world. Uh, at least I would think so. Just, that we don't have our affairs in order. I mean, because it's, it's got to reflect on the United States somehow, I would think. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the other thing I have to say about it is it's, it is it's just overwhelming and sad that, that it's all coming to this and his presidency is just going to be tarnished forever. Really? Uh, I guess maybe he can make it, better to his followers in this election? I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's what's so crazy about it, right? Like the the next 15 months essentially are going to be, obviously he's going to run for president. And now we're going to be talking about the issues of the 2024 campaign and, you know, hanging over all this feels like are going to be these four, if not more coming down the pike, major trials slash lawsuits going on with the guy who is potentially and probably going to be one of the two candidates running. I mean, you know, whatever you love him or hate him, like that is going to be the defining conversation about this election. And it's just, I don't know, it seems kind of wild to me. It is, it is wild. And I mean, the craziest part is that some people are grasping onto it all and they think it's a good thing that he's 
fighting the fight and everything because I guess they like conflict. And I think that this will make him shine better to a lot of those people. For me, I mean, I'm just looking at it and I, it's kind of all disgusting because now I know that that's all we're going to hear about. Yeah. And it's going to overshadow the election. I mean, it has to. And I mean, you know, just as well as I do that when a big story like this breaks, it's just robots talking about it for 20, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's all we're going to hear. We probably won't hear the good things and the bad things from the presidential election. It'll just be overshadowed by all this that's going on. Yeah, it, it seems like, like it would be great if there was maybe some like substantive conversations happening in the in the world of politics. But it seems like maybe that's not where we're headed. And, and I, I say that kind of dovetails with topic number two, get your temperature on this, because on the other end of the spectrum is the is Joe Biden. He appears to be the Democratic nominee. He's uh, very old. Uh, he's he's Grandpa Grandpa Joe. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump also very old, but seems maybe a little bit less old. At least that's my that's my temperature check on it. Uh, he recently acknowledged his seventh grandchild for the first time in a People magazine statement. Uh, this is Hunter Biden's love child going on. What what do you make of all this, Grandpa Joe doing this in this way, and kind of that element of like the Hunter Biden? drama going on as another element of all this 2024 election stuff? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I really don't care, to be honest. And I think it's it's probably going to die out soon because of all the other things that are more interesting that are going on in the news. But, you know, uh, what do you say about that? I'm sure that this has been in the background with attorneys being worked on, and I mean, Hunter's seems like one of those people that you wouldn't want as part of your family because he's always got something going on. He's always in the news about some scandal or something. And I just, you know, there's one of my friends has this uh, cousin in his family and her name is Amy and he calls her Shamey. And that's exactly what I think about when I think of Hunter Biden. It's just, Shamey. it's just, yeah, it's just always something. But um I think, you know, the Bidens are handling it the way I would probably handle it. They're saying that it's a family matter and that they're dealing with it the way they know best to deal with it. And also, they're like the most famous people in the world. So I would imagine you don't just get linked up with someone that is uh, a child out of wedlock. It's not something that they're going to bring the child over and the Bidens are just going to meet the child. I mean, it's, there's more to it than that. So I, I don't know. It's it's honestly laughable that's even in the news, to be honest, to, in my opinion. I mean, who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Shamey. Uh, yeah. Hunter. Hunter is shamey because like I he. He went and had all these issues, obviously, the drug problems and, you know, the sexual deviant things going on that were related to the drug problems, whatever. OK, he left. He went to go paint in California. And now he's essentially or actually living in the White House, spending, you know, every weekend with with the president. It's like he he's not going away quietly. And that, like now he's part of this whole 2024 conversation now, too. Yeah, I wish you would just sail off into the sunset, to be honest. Right. Yeah, no, no, he's he's around. Um, all right. I mean, do, do, do the Bidens have enough going on and are the spot in the spotlight for all sorts of things? And a lot of things are are being blamed on uh, Joe Biden for what Trump's going through. I mean, that's going to definitely get brought up more, I think. And then to have to have Shaney in the background just causing a ruckus, I don't know, not good. Yeah, it's like in 2020, Hunter Biden kept being brought up by by Trump as, uh, you know, this was like the attack line from him. And then so much more has come out since then, obviously, like he's being investigated by, you know, there's like three different things going on. There's the IRS thing and there's Ukraine and there's China and, and Kazakhstan. And and is it connected to Joe or is it just Hunter or is it Jimmy Biden, the brother? It's like the the family drama aspect of this, I feel like, is, is going to be a dominating media story on the other end of the spectrum, at least. True. But look at Trump's family. I yeah. Mean we all have that somewhere in our family, probably. They're just in the limelight all the time. 
maybe it's more uh, it's something relatable you know the the, yeah. the family the family chaos drama um all right let me ask you on a, on a different topic get your temperature on this did you see that video the crazy plane lady uh who was outside of of our airport in dallas i think she's from dallas as we we've, we've now mm-hmm. learned she was like hysterically screaming about like the motherfucker not being real on the plane and the plane's going to crash and then like later there's video of her in the in the airport after she had been removed talking about that the plane's going to blow up and then she puts out this video apologizing for cursing but not explaining the what she was so concerned about in the first place yeah. or, or any of that what, what do you make let me get your temperature on this uh i i can't tell you how many times i've had a little too much to drink maybe <laughs> maybe she had some pills in there too Mm. and have said some crazy stuff before that is next level though i think we could all agree and uh, i found it a little bit perplexing why she didn't talk about anything other than the the cursing and and i'm sorry i did that and i'm i am the crazy lady and i embrace that or the crazy plain lady i think she calls herself (laughs) yeah or the the internet calls her that and yeah it was kind of weird i don't i don't get it and i mean she can't be or maybe she is, she can't be Looney Tunes. I mean, she has a, it appears that she has a nice home and she's got a great job. And, but this is why I always pay for first class. Keep that drama in the back. My <laughs> I was, God. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you're thinking maybe alcohol and pills and, and all right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, she's a 38 year old marketing executive. Uh, if we are to believe that the person who has apologized is the person from the plane, which she does not really look like her. No, she didn't. Uh-uh. So I don't know. But yeah, I guess she cleaned up really, really well. And uh, the video seemed kind of phony to me, to the apology video. But, you know, I guess if I were in the same situation, I would make myself do the same sort of video. <laughs> I think I'd, you know, I think I'd be a little bit more... Uh, genuine with how my reaction but you know i don't get the whole thing of her not addressing what really was going on unless it just literally what what if she doesn't even remember it that's that's what i was thinking about right she just doesn't remember i mean obviously it's on video so it's hard to deny the things that were taken video of but maybe she just doesn't remember the whole thing and why she freaked out yeah maybe the aliens are coming well, that's, the, I mean, not to get, uh, you know, ghosts, aliens, like what, what is the, the, where is her head at? And you're right though. I mean, maybe it's just like, maybe it's something that she does sometimes, you know, maybe if she has too much to drink or mixes, like, she's like, oh no, I went, uh, I've been, I've been accused back from my college days of like going off a cliff. And like, whenever I go off a cliff, I have no recollection of it, you know? And so mm-hmm. I don't, I can't be accountable for that. I know I get a little bit meaner, I, you know, I'm, I've long been past my, my off a cliff days, but maybe that's the situation. Uh, maybe she just doesn't have a, a real explanation of it, but I want to know what she thought was going to happen to that plane. I, I'm, I, maybe she knew what was happening and, and maybe we're all just like, you know, yeah. on the outside. Maybe that's why she didn't address it or, Maybe she was just really upset because she had to go to Orlando. <laughs> Is that where she was going, Orlando? I believe so. I mean, it was Florida, so yeah. I, you know, I probably have a few drinks in me before I got to Florida too. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to stay on that one. Uh, let me let me end with this. Uh, Lizzo. Uh, it started as like one story. Lizzo was fat shaming her backup dancers, and then they're going to sue her for some sort of harassment. And they they were like, she was working them too hard, her and her team. Now we've got like racial elements to it. We've got these weird things being forced to do sex acts in Amsterdam with bananas. It, it's gone totally crazy. But I, I guess I'm I'm curious where you stand on it. Lizzo, big pop star, uh, I would say universally positive stories about her until like the last week or so. And then it's just been this flood of stuff. So, so what do you make of it all? Again, I, and I hate to be a broken record, but who cares? I mean, this is like Ellen DeGeneres 2.0. It's who knows if they're true. I mean, probably Amsterdam. Hello. I mean, things happen in Amsterdam. Were, Were the people forced to be there with her? I don't know that many people of, a great uh, net worth or fame hanging out with their employees. I'll say that much. I mean, uh, and I wouldn't want anyone to come to my office 
after, if, especially, or not, not by office, but I wouldn't want to hang out with my employees after hours in an environment like an Amsterdam nightclub that was um, all nude. I mean, that just sounds like chaotic and not good. Um, but the other thing is, I'm not a fan of her music, so I guess I can speak very plainly. It sounds like the classic, I want what you have and you're famous, I'm going to come after you. And let's be real, I, I don't think fat shaming dancers is a thing. You can't be a fat dancer. or I don't think you can. I'm not, I'm not a dancer, but how do you perform your job if you're... Now, that's, that's, that's interesting, but there is like a thing where she seemed to be i think there was a netflix show or something I, I have to dig more into this where she was like trying doing a kind of touting her fat dancers i guess i mean that was like a, that was a, a hook huh. of it is like look at me and all of my body positive uh dancers you know even we can we can dance like the best of them or something i don't know well so. i think ever since lizzo came onto the scene we've seen <laughs> larger women uh bearing their souls at the pool and i and i get that there's a body positivity thing but i'm not going around showing my body off and i would prefer if everyone just kept their swimsuit you know one piece that's that's more in line with what i want to see <laughs> bearing uh, their souls well yeah kind of but <laughs> i just that whole thing sounds a little sus to me yeah about the lawsuit and the allegations. And again, they're all allegations at this point. And what kills me the most is people going off the rails when someone files a lawsuit and then everyone assumes that this person is guilty. And I mean, to Lizzo's defense, we don't know. We weren't there. You're kind of on the, you're on the Lizzo side here in this. The dancers are coming after her maybe for, you know, they want a beer. Again, she's not my cup of tea, but I... I just, I don't buy the whole thing. I really don't. All right. Well, Trump and Lizzo, innocent until proven guilty. Okay. Both of them. Yeah. We can, we can agree. That's where they intersect. (laughs) Um, I think so. I mean, Trump needs to worry a little bit more than Lizzo, I think at this point. It's true. True. Different, different scales. Um, JT, always good getting your temperature. Nice talking to you, Steve. All right. That was fun. Thanks to JT, to Glenn Greenwald, Tara Palmieri, Shelby Talcott. Thank you for joining me today. And remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. You can subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.